Welcome everyone to Paranormal Roundtable. I'm your host, Josh Turner. Paranormal Roundtable, PRT, a lot of people call it PRT. We have a show tonight we're going to do, but before we do that, we got to get the this information out of the way. Uh, there's a lot of things that have happened, so we got to talk about it real quick. I know a lot of you, the date you don't, you're stubborn, you don't go and listen to the live streams or watch the live streams on Tuesday, and shame on you for that. That's your bad. You choose to just listen to me on Spotify or whatever. That's fine. I don't have problems with Spotify, but uh, you're missing out because we have a, we usually do two or three hours show every Tuesday, a live stream, and then and, and we, we put a lot of effort into it. I sit up there and act a fool, and you're missing that. You're not getting to look at me. So shame on you. I'm just I'm just going to throw that out there. So yeah, anyway, they kind of deserve not to know like why why there was like a two week hiatus. If they don't watch the live stream, if they're just on Spotify, then as far as I know, we just disappeared for like a whole week or a whole two weeks, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Three so, weeks. So if you don't go to YouTube and hit like and subscribe and watch and watch the uh, the live streams, then then you probably don't know why that is and you don't deserve to know. Yeah, you're not going to know. Yeah. Yeah. All you know is like, you know how your dog or your cat thinks when you walk outside the door, you die. Yeah. And then you come back to life later on in the afternoon when you come home from work. That's what you're doing. You're literally yeah. a cat or a dog. That's what you're, you know. We're just kidding. Don't get all bunched up. You're more like a weasel. I'm not kidding. Go to YouTube <laughs> and subscribe. <laughs> so, so here we go. We got this show, but 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 let me get to some some seriousness here. Uh, PRTpodcast.com. That's the website, right, Anthony? Yep. PRTpodcast.com, and then you have Josh Turner at PRTpodcast.com. You can send me your stories on email. Um, that's a little backed up. The, the, one of the better ways to do it, if you can't get through on that, is to hit me up on Messenger. Now, the way to get hit me up on Messenger, send me a friend request on Facebook, okay? I keep my friend request pretty tight, okay? I just went in again. It was getting up to almost 3,000, and I cut a bunch of stuff out of, out of there. Uh, are you a listener of PRT? No no response, but yet you sh- they show that they, they saw what I said. Goodbye. You're gone. See, that's the thing. I keep my friend, rec- my friend list real tight. So that I, it's only people I know in my real life, whatever, and then people that watch the show or listen to the show, depending on what your preference, whatever. But that you can get in. You can be a friend of mine. If you're a listener of the show, you're in. But let me know that you're a listener of the show, okay? And uh, th- that's how you get in. And then you can talk to me. Messenger, I try to answer almost everybody. Anthony knows that. We try to answer people. Um, <clears throat> here's another thing. We have three main groups and then we have a few other satellite groups that we work with i can't get into all of them it's take too long but paranormal roundtable is the main group we have the paranormal roundtable prayer group that, that people can send prayer requests to when people are sick things like that my wife created that she runs that and then she has paranormal lounge and, and paranormal roundtable and paranormal lounge are not for prayer requests we, we made a specific group for that and then there's paranormal encounters run by tony by uh, my godson, uh, and then which is Mushu, they call him Mushu, and then and then what is the other one? The uh, paranormal or PRT fan club, Josh Turner, whatever. Which half the people in there think that I'm the country singer, which I'm not, and it's just fun to talk to them. And they think, hey, you're talking to Josh Turner. I'm like, you know, I'm not that guy, right? And then they're like, oh god, this sucks, and they get out. So, anyways, that that's what's going on. Phil Stern created that. Chris Clough and him are always in there clowning, cutting up, whatever. And they like to make memes. And one and one of the memes that they like to make is of a person that's actually going to be on the show tonight. His name is obviously going to be in the uh, on the description, so you know he's he's here. And uh, that's Barton Nunley. Now, here's the thing: before we get Barton on and he starts to to talk about the things he's going to talk about, 
we have a couple things that happened um, this past week. Now, I, the reason we were off, we had a hiatus. Me, Anthony, Nelly, uh, my brother, his son, Zane, all of us all had COVID. We we caught it, and, and we have gotten over it. It's very, very not good stuff, okay? And uh, let me tell you something. It, it, it dang near killed me. I'm not going to lie. Me and my wife, my wife still got a partially collapsed lung. She's getting better. She's healing slowly. Um, please prayers for all that, you know, uh, just, just, we can continue to heal. I'm, I'm ready to get back in the gym. I feel like I feel terrible. I've lost a bunch of weight, but I'm, my muscles look like deflated. Got little spaghetti arm, noodle arms would be the time to beat me up. If you could, if you get here. Yeah. I lost like 10 pounds. Yeah. I lost 17 or yeah. Yeah. 17. Let me tell you something. It's a, it's bad. You know, it's very bad. Now I also though, with this same COVID, uh, wave, we lost two very good people. One of them was my former co-host, Armando Salazar. And uh, we he died last Sunday. Um, so you guys listen to this. It would be the Sunday before last for you guys. Uh, and then our very dear friend, me and Barton's good friend, I'm going to introduce Barton Nunley to the show. Uh, Johnny Henderson. Can't say enough about the guy. I had we We had a show in the works. Same thing happened with Scott Martis. When Martis died, he didn't die of COVID. But when he died, we were in the works. It was in the process of getting ready to do a show together. We were going to do a, a show. And then same thing happened. Me and Johnny, we talked. And we, we talked for like an hour, two hours on the phone. It was, it was a long conversation. And we were going to do a little bit of the LBL because he was getting ready to be on Travel Channel for the LBL. And then, you know, we, we were going to do the Bell Witch together. And then, unfortunately, he, you know, the Lord took him. He passed um, of COVID. And, you know, his wife, April, died of cancer back in April. So his children, you know, are left alone in this world now without their their mom and dad. It's very, very sad. Elijah and Gabby and they're good kids. And uh, so we have, you want to talk about that, Bart, about the. Sure. So uh, Johnny, rest his, rest his soul. Uh, he didn't have any life insurance or, or health insurance in there are facing a, at least an $8,000 funeral bill for him. So uh, I put up on my Facebook page the link to Johnny's PayPal account. So if anyone uh, has the means to do so and is moved to do so, they can go to my Facebook page and click that account and donate directly to Johnny's family. So uh, the GoFundMe page uh, people usually put up in these circumstances uh, just had too many uh, glitches to to work for them because they only have three days to come up with the money to pay for Johnny's burial. Yeah. And so the GoFundMe has, um, you know, everybody's, everyone I've ever donated to have always told me and complained about it. It takes forever to get the money, and they only get half the money and uh, this and that. So we figured we'd circumnavigate that and, and just put the Johnny's PayPal account uh, up there. So anyone who wants to, to help with the funeral expenses for the kids, dad, you can go to my page and uh, donate through that, that link. Yeah. And, and so, uh, the thing is Johnny was a very good guy and I think he just really he missed his wife so much. Uh, and I just, I think that he just wasn't, he didn't have the will to go on. I mean, you know, and I just, one of the things I'm going to say folks about that uh, situation was that when Johnny 
was was sick. And if you get COVID, it's very important that you don't do these things. Don't start to feeling better in the first week or two and then think, oh, I'm good because you feel better and then start going to the gym and start living your life like everything's fine. And people do that. And then they relapse. Anthony, he was about a week in, right, Anthony? And then you went and worked two shifts and then you felt like crap for three days. Oh, yeah. And it knocked him back. And uh, so you get to be very guarded. Uh, me and Barton's good friend, Lyle Blackburn, he gave me some advice. He said, man, I know you like to lift. He's like, I, got, I went in the gym about a week after I got, you know, got over it. He's like, I, I like to diet. He said he was so dizzy, almost fell out. And he knows I like to go in there and lift heavy. I like to go in there and, and you know, do 600 reps on the heavy bag. It's, you know, you can't do all that. You got to, you got to take it easy until you can get fully recovered. Now, folks, this is no joke, okay? Whether you believe in the different theories or whatever, we're not here to debate all that. We're just here to tell you that, you know, you got to take it easy with this thing, okay? It's a real thing. What you believe it is or don't believe it is, we're not here to debate it. Me and Barton have our own theories and we're not going to get into. But the thing is, uh, people are dying. People are dying from it and it is no joke. And so, you know, you got two children left in the world. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to uh, put up some money to help with the funeral expenses and everything. That you guys, by the time you hear this, the uh, it'll already be like past the time. But that'll help the, the children re recoup what the money they have to get, you know, because some people are going to lend and some people are going to, you know, whatever. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give. But some people can't. They can't do that. And they say, well, I can let them borrow it to pay for the whatever. And that money that they get will be able to help pay that back. Now, that's how that works. Um, but because you say, well, you know, it's already going to be too late, but th that will help them recoup their money. Because they don't have a lot of money. Yeah, it's never, never too, too late. late to no. And uh, Elijah, I hope he's got Cryptid Studies Institute. I hope he continues to do that. And I'm going to work with him. I'm going to work with him on the Bell Witch now since his dad has passed away and, and God rest his soul. And so um, that being said, I got Barton on the show. Me and Barton, uh, let me give you a little bit of history. We'll get into that. Uh, and I promise I'll let Barton speak in there. Barton and me, just so you know, I reached out to Barton about two, three years ago. And he was very nice, very, very respectful guy. And I didn't know me from Adam. And I said, Barton, this is Josh Turner. And, I'm, and I, I uh, have a sh you know, show that I'm getting, I think I was getting ready to make it or something. And I asked about his books. And I uh, had an idea for the show. And I was like, I'm going to give away books, whatever, if I start doing this. And uh, Barton said, I'm probably the only author in America who doesn't have one copy <laughs> of his books. And he sent me that back and he was very polite. And he said, I'm so sorry, you know, I don't have any, you know, but you can get them off of Amazon, whatever. I said, well, that, 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 that'll help. That's fine. I can get some books, but I want you to sign them. And then, you know, so we talked a little bit, you know, and then it's kind of lost touch. I just kind of went on and, 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 you know, moved on, didn't, didn't, didn't correspond much after that. Um, I don't remember if, if I just left it hanging or what, but we we did a, a a long series together on our live stream. Now, folks, this is why it's important to listen to the live stream. And I don't remember exactly the dates of when it started, but we had a witness come forward from the LBL. Now, Barton has done a bunch of work on the LBL, the land between the lakes. Of course, people know about the murders and all the things that went on out there. Um, 
So this guy comes forward. He says he's got information about it. And then I had Jody Cook and the NADP come on there and they, they gave their reasons why they didn't believe him. And then uh, Johnny Henderson reached out to me and said, hey, I'd like to come on the show and say our part because, you know, they were the ones that interviewed him first. He comes on. They talk. And then uh, Jody came back on the show to kind of debate Roger. Well, it started getting out of hand a little bit. And, I, you know, Jody's a very boisterous person. And uh, so Barton came on there and kind of helped me uh, regulate. I had reached out to Barton and I said, your name's being bandied about, you know, that you know this, you know that. Can you can you come on and help? And Barton's like, sure. And after that first initial episode, me and Barton started talking. And it was like we were old friends. It was like just one of the easiest people to talk to, you know. And now I consider him, you know, one of my close confidants in this circle. And, and it's a small circle. I don't have a lot of people like you, Linda. Godfrey, obviously, you and Linda. And then I talked to, to Nick Redfern. I talked to Nick Valente a lot. And I talked to uh, Ken Gerhardt, Lyle Blackburn, and David Weatherly. Those are the main people that I talk to. I mean, like, I'll actually shoot the breeze with, and, and I can call you guys up and talk to you, and y'all can call me up, and we can talk, and we'll share information and whatever. Now, here's the thing. Barton was out of out of this whole arena, the whole, the, the whole uh, cryptid thing, the whole paranormal thing, whatever. Doing nothing for like what? No, about three years. And I just got so fed up with it. You know, Josh, it's not, you know, it, it was just every time I would log on to, online, I would, I would see a bunch of people lying and uh, pretending to be things that they weren't. And, and it was, you know, and I'd already said everything that I, I set out to say. And when I come online, uh, 15 years ago and so I'd already said everything that I, I needed to say in my books and I just you know I just lost all interest in it and you know and until Roger came came along and Roger's story was um, it was totally uh, unique in that he had he was the only one that I'd ever heard of in history of cryptozoology or the Freudian subjects that ever claimed to have witnessed a dog man kill another human being and and as the story went at the end the dog man was dead as well so it gave me Roger's story gave me hope that you know maybe I can still do something I, I always thought these things were strictly supernatural creatures and mankind could not harm them in any way but Roger's story gave me uh, a little hope that, that that might not be true and that someone could actually make a difference and do something to keep these things from killing people and so that's why I came back in it, and, um, and I've been back in it for a year now, and uh, it's it's been <laughs> something. Man, Barton, uh, I thought yeah. it was longer than that because when when me and you had corresponded, it was over two years ago, and I, I'm pretty sure the first time. Yeah. And I remember you saying, so, "Oh, I've been out of it for years because you just got fed up, you know, and and you weren't really yeah, doing like, anything, writing books or anything." Right. Well, 2018 is when I decided to stop, but I'm, I'm still writing my. My final cryptid book, uh, The Spotsville Monster, which is a story of my own family. Uh, it happened to us back in 1975 in Henderson, Kentucky, but I'm still working on that. But other than that, I was I was really done, yeah, for years. So uh, Roger really gets the credit for, for bringing me back into this. And, and since then, I've been down to LBL two or three times with, with Nightmare, trying to get these things to come out, but they just don't seem to want to come out and face me, Josh. And for and, those that uh, don't know, Nightmare is his, uh, that's his trusty, uh, he's got like a, a toothpick that he always keeps in his, 
in, in his mouth yeah, when he goes and, and that's and, a pocket knife. <laughs> And when the yeah, dog man comes, he says, hey, get out of here. And he flicks him in the face with it. And that's his plan. He's going to slap him. <laughs> right. Well, you know. But thanks to Roger's story, I'm back in it and and, and still going, uh, moving forward with, with my plans. Despite all this COVID uh, mess that's going around, uh, it, it makes it hard to do. But I've still gotten out several times and met with Johnny Henderson and Mark Maycheck down in LBL and me and Johnny and my wife and uh, Gabby and Elijah all got covered in ticks together. And I'll tell you what, there's not very many researchers in this country that can say they come out with Barton and Lee and got covered with ticks with him. Because, you know, I, I usually don't don't associate with anyone, right? So Johnny Harrison was one of the few that could say that. And uh, unfortunately, we just lost him. It was a, a terrible blow to the cryptic community because he was, he was doing some really good work. Uh, over at Cryptid Studies Institute, him and Elijah both. And well, I have talked to Elijah. I went down, my wife and I went down and visited Elijah and Gabby uh, the day that Johnny died. And uh, they, they, Elijah is going to, he does plan to continue with the Cryptid Studies Institute and putting up content. Yeah, that's so good. That's, you know, that's what he thinks, you know, that's what Johnny would have wanted him to do is he carry on. And, and Elijah's so talented. He's very talented. He's a very, very uh, uh, compelling speaker. You know, you just want to listen to him. He has that kind of voice that you just, you know, feel comfortable listening to all the time. So, you know, I just pray that they're gonna, everything's gonna be all right for them, and you know, and that people will step up and help these kids uh, in the time of need, need because they're really, really special kids. You know, both of them are, mm-hmm. are really special and talented. <clears throat> and and the thing about this too, folks, uh, uh, we don't know how many episodes this is going to make because we're not sure yet. But we're going. We have action figures that we're, that are being made. Barton and Lyle are, are right now my two partners in that endeavor, and we're we're, we're they're doing it just because they, they, it's fun. They want to. It's it's a fun thing. Me, I'm doing it to help promote the show. Um, you know, and and it's fun. I like action figures. Who doesn't? And Charlie Perez is the mastermind behind that. And he's working with us. And so there's three action figures so far, Barton. We're going to give away one during the course of this. Uh, when we when we post this show to the Paranormal Roundtable group page, uh, when we send the link on there, we're going to pick a comment out of there. And one of you guys is going to, each episode, you're going to get a Barton Nunley. We're going to give away a Barton Nunley book. But one person oh, of those great. is going to get a, an action figure, a Barton only action figure. There's going to be three, one for him, one for me. And then the third one's going to be to a random person, a fan of the show. And you're going to get the legend, uh, Barton Nunley. Nightmare is his sword, by the way. That's not a toothpick. <laughs> We're joking around. People are going to go, our toothpick. Um, people yeah. take things literal. But that's, no, Nightmare is his sword. And now I feel honored that you invited me, you and Johnny both, multiple times to come out there and roll around and get ticks with y'all. And I was just right. kind of like, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you promised Never me. A- <laughs> Every cryptozoologist or paranormal investigator should experience getting their body covered in ticks at least one time in their life. Getting it's Lyme like disease. A damn horror movie. It's a horror movie, right? It's, oh. it's terrible. But it's something that, you know, it has to be put up with. If you want to get out in the field and do actual boots on the ground research in these places that all these extraordinary events are alleged to have happened, right? You can't do it from the car. 
you know, you can't drive around. Oh, this is there's the uh, area down there in this road here, and never get out of the car. You have to, you know, get out and and put your boots on the ground and really dig around and look. And so that's how it's done. Well, and and the thing I talked to Nick Redfern the other day about this, and we had we were talking because Redfern is a very very prolific author. If anybody doesn't know. He's giving me some right. pointers on how to – he's kind of coaching me on how to write my book. He helped uh, you actually get Inhumanoids published. Uh, great guy. Great guy. Yeah, we've been friends for about 15 years, right? And if, and if you like Inhumanoids, then uh, you can thank Nick Redfern for, for being able to read that book because uh, every publisher in the United States that I, I sent the manuscript to loved the book but hated my conclusions at the end. And every one of them, without fail, said, we'll love to, we'd love to publish this book. We'll give you so much money to publish this book. But you have to take out the last three or four pages. And um, I said, no. And they said, the book is the book. I mean, that's what I wrote, and I'm not changing anything. So uh, it's strictly rejection for for a couple of years, right? And I'd already really given up on trying to get the book ever published. I thought it was a really good book. It turned out really, really well, I thought. And uh but I'd given up on ever seeing it published until Nick Redfern, he called me up and says, hey, hey Bart, you know, I, I got a friend in, in, in the UK that he's a book publisher and he loves his stuff. It's Jonathan Downs is his name. And uh, send me the uh, the manuscript and I'll forward it on to him and we'll see what he says. And so that's what I did. And it, it wasn't a week later that Jonathan Downs was contacting me. He said, I love this book. It's top five of all time. And oh, man. want to publish it. I can't say enough about said, that book. Yeah, okay, that sounds great, John. Uh, but, but, is there a but in there? Because every other one said, but, you have to take out the ending of it, right? All your conclusions have to be uh, taken out. But Jonathan Downs said, there is no but. I said, I don't have to change anything or take out anything. No, we wanted every word just like it is, which just blew me away. And I was so happy. I said, all right, you got a deal. And uh, the rest is really history. But you can thank uh, Nick Redfern for that, and uh, I know I've thanked him before years ago, but I'm going to thank him again right now. Thanks, Nick. I really appreciate it, buddy. Well, here, here's a funny story about that. Like I was talking to Nick, and when I had mentioned, you know, a while back, this was an old conversation we had, not recent, but um, we, I'd said something about that book being my favorite all-time book, and he was like, "Oh yeah, Barton's a great author." He didn't even like take credit. He didn't even go like, "Yeah, yeah, I helped him do that." Nothing. Well, he's, I mean, yeah, he's a humble guy. He's a humble guy. I would have been like, yeah, I did it. <laughs> and, you know, talking on the phone, I love to talk. I love the British accents. I love everything <laughs> yeah. from the mother country, right? And it was so fun talking to him on the phone. And, and he's just a great guy all the way around. And I never got to meet him yet, but hopefully one of these days, you know. Yeah, I, not, I not face to face, you know. But, you know, the thing is, he he's funny because, like, he, he had, when his action figure, he said, he sent me a message. It's the only time I've ever kind of seen him complain at all. He didn't, and I wouldn't even call it a complaint. It was just like he goes, "You know, I'm a lot taller than Nick, yeah, than Ken and Lyle." <laughs> said, yeah, I'm sorry. We'll get that corrected. It's an action figure. You can't really, you know, it's not perfect. It's just gonna, and it's gonna make you look way more bigger and buff, buff right. than you are, you know. And that's just how it goes. Oh, but. they all look like Marvel superheroes. Which, yeah, that's great. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> well, you're a big comic book guy, though. That's that's. You got a, bi- a bazillion yeah. comic books, yeah, yeah. You're like me with the sports car. I got sports cards, but I collect. Uh, I don't. I collect graphic novels, but I don't. I don't collect uh, comic books themselves anymore. And I, but I have a lot of the the cards, the Marvel trading cards and DC trading. I have tons of those. They're everywhere. Wow. 
Yeah, but yeah, I started reading comics when I was four years old. Uh, I actually started reading before I ever went into school, and it was thanks to comics that you know I give comics the credit for uh, teaching me the morals and the moral values uh, that my parents didn't teach me, which they did. They, my, especially my father, he taught me uh, all about honor and how to live for other people and not put yourself first. But the comic books really gave me my vocabulary and my creativity, you know, and. Then I'd started, after reading them, I, I wanted to draw them. And I'd started copying panels from Spider-Man or, or Conan, you know, the Barbarian. And, and before you know it, uh, a few years went by and I kept at it and I was becoming a really good artist. And so that's what I was known for back in school was being an artist. But I always dreamed of being a comic book artist, but life didn't, you know, it didn't agree with that plan. And so I ended up something completely different. Well, what what about your like? Okay, in your mysterious Kentucky book and your Inhumanoids, did you draw those pictures? Yes, yeah, oh, I illustrated yeah. Uh, mysterious Kentucky myself, right? Yeah, and I'd go to the witnesses, you know, and I would sit down with the witnesses in person in their living rooms and sketch these these creatures that they saw, and just like a police sketch artist, you know. I think uh, David Pilatus said years ago that. He's the first one to ever you ever sit down and uh, employ the the police sketch artist technique to cryptid witnesses. No, Dave, I'm sorry, you're not. You know, I was doing that 15 years ago, and the witnesses that I couldn't uh, meet in person, we would do it uh, via email. I would start with the sketch, you know, after a basic description, and send them the uh, the sketch, and they would say this needs to be changed, that needs to be changed, this needs to look like that, and we'd keep doing that until eventually I sent the email that they said, okay, that's perfect. And when, they, when I got to that point, I'd always tell them, okay, you think it's perfect, but if there was one thing that you could change, one thing that would make it look more like what you saw, what would it be? And uh, I would I would only stop when they said I wouldn't change anything. So that's when the, the, the sketch was complete. So that's the way I've done it, and I've, I've been doing it for 15 years now. And you had a lot – the mysterious Kentucky book, okay – a lot's been said about the Inhumanoids. Like, I'm going to tell you guys right now, it ain't in the top five. It is my favorite book. And I'm not saying that because you're on my show. Um, I like Ken, Nick, Lyle, Linda, and David. All got great books. I've read some of Politis' books, too. I like, you know, <clears throat> but the thing is, Lon Strickler, I mean, yeah, I like all of them. But the thing is, you're, that one particular book, Inhumanoids, is my favorite book. Now, you told me, you kept telling me, and I'm a very busy guy, but you kept getting on me saying, hey, Read that mysterious Kentucky book. You're gonna so, so I said okay. So I started reading the book and, and I read most of it. But here's the thing about that mysterious Kentucky book that really showcases your talent as an author, you know. And it made me so angry because I'm sitting there looking at this book and going, "I'm never going to be as good as this." And I'm so mad about that. It was my first attempt. My first <laughs> and it attempt, was so yeah, good. Well, thanks, brother. But I, you know, I have a writing background, not professionally, but I've written short stories my whole life all during school and comic books you know so i was no stranger to writing i didn't just jump in and uh write well I, i've been writing it's good it's great years, it's awesome. years, right? so but i appreciate appreciate you saying that it really means a lot to me well you know barton i'm going to tell you something not just you're just not just you're a friend you know and 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 all you guys are my friends but I like that 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 Inhumanoids was my reference guide. And I'll tell you something. I'll tell you a quick story. I had sold – okay, you're going to think this is crazy. 
that book at one point on Amazon was going for crazy. I, you couldn't find it. I don't know what was going on. It was probably 10 years ago, trying to find it or however long ago it was, several several years ago. And so I was like, I, I, I had lost the book. And uh, it was, like I said, it was crazy on Amazon. I, yeah, I do. And, and so I was oh, trying wow. to find it. Yeah, and I ha- I've had it for years. And so I got so mad because my my, uh, my nephews, you know, they, they were like, hey, they came to me like Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and they're all like, hey, you know, Uncle Wolf, you got too many books. You got a thousand books in the house, I'm taking up all this room. You got them in our bedrooms. You got them everywhere. And I'm like, what's wrong with that? And they're like, well, there's a lot. We have no room. There's no room. We have to get rid of some books. So I took literally half of my books. I took 580-something books. I'm not joking, folks. Took them to half price books. Got about $2 for all of them. Made me so mad. But oh I, had, I had to. I had to get rid of them. I had too many books. And, and so then I, I I was, one day I was, I was looking at my shelf and I was like, where is that in humanoids book? And I was looking, 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 and I started tearing up the whole house. I took books off of my shelves and I had all my people helping me do it. There was about six people there just tearing up my house, looking for that book, for your book. Then I gave up. So I went to Amazon. They wanted like a hundred and something dollars. I'm going, what in the heck is going on? So I went to eBay um, and it was, yeah, it was the original that, that, you know, I couldn't get that books original, whatever. So I was so right, so mad about that. It must have been about 10 years ago. 10 years ago, at because least. five years ago. Yeah. About five or six years ago, uh, they were selling for five and 6,000 copy dollars a copy on uh-huh. Amazon. This was this about 10 crazy. years ago. I couldn't believe how I'm much like, they oh were going God. for. People are, people are spending $5,000 for, for a, this a book. book and, Wow, I couldn't believe it. It just blew my mind. But the thing of that was, is uh, the the contract between me and and uh, the the British publisher didn't work out too well. So you know, I, I terminated the contract. So that book was not available for years, until uh, um, finally I got another publisher who 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 wanted to publish it. Right, so it wasn't available for years. And you know, there are no signed copies of that first edition out there. There's like there's only like four of them, and I sent one to Lauren Coleman. I sent one to uh, uh, Linda Godfrey, and I sent one to Mary Green, and uh, all those were signed. And, and as far as I know, those are the only signed copies out there. But you cannot buy that book today at any price no. on any outlet. You just can't do it. And Nobody's I have selling it. Them. I have it, and I'm proud to say that I have it. And And you know, Barton, that book, you know how I found it? You know where I found it? I have these deep bookshelves that I get really nice. Like they're like cherry wood, whatever. I have these really nice bookshelves. Um, they had fallen. It, it had gotten behind. So one day we were dusting, doing a deep clean. And my brother goes, hey, isn't this this humanoid? He called it humanoid. This is a humanoid book you were screaming about a few months ago. He always says things so eloquently about me. And I said, yes, it is. That's absolutely that. He goes, here you go, you big baby. It's your book. And I was like, dude, you don't understand. I was like, this book, I just don't, I didn't even try to talk to him about it. I said, you don't get it. It's just a very special book. So I put it up on my shelf and I had it with my other books from Nick and, and, and Lyle and Ken and Linda. And I had them all up there, you know, and uh, none of them were autographed at that time, you know? And, and of course I was nobody. I was just doing shows on, uh, with Dogman Encounters or whatever, I wasn't, and didn't know for sure if I was going to do a show. And I had all these crazy ideas and I'm thinking, well, I'm going to do this. And Armando, God rest his soul, uh, buddy that just passed away right before Johnny, he kept on me. 
he kept on me saying, you know, you, we got to do a show together. We got to do a show together. He goes, you, you would be great to do a podcast. You have all this information. Armando had seen my, uh, my logs, my, uh, the, the, the stories that I'd gotten. He had seen them. He'd looked through my notebooks, which I didn't let too many people do, my journals. And he says, dude, you have all these people, these witnesses. You talk to all these people. Armando started, you know, talking to people and, and getting stories. And we started, you know, he goes, I got some stories ready to go. And we just, as soon as we hit, you know, we hit the ground running, you know. And so I interviewed some people that he brought in. And and then just one thing led to another. And I had kind of put you on the back burner. But in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, I have got to get this guy on my show and it was just kind of like how you ended up coming on the live stream was just kind of like it just fell into place because, you know, there was all that stuff with Jody and Roger and Johnny. And then right. and your name kept being bandied about. So you you answered right away. Like, I just messaged you and I said, this is Josh Turner. And you said, yeah, because you've been following what was going on, you know. And so you sent me your phone number and we talked. Right. And it was like a whirlwind. And I said, okay, can you come on the show tonight? And you said, yeah. And then it was <laughs> that was it. And then. Afterwards, we started talking, and it was just like, man, you know, we just became fast friends. And then we had so many darn right. things like in common. Yeah. We got so many things in common, oh, dude. Brothers. I mean. We could be brothers or separated at birth or something. Oh, it's yeah. crazy. It's a crazy. Lot of people call that, a lot of people call your, your live stream, that one you're talking about, with Roger and Jody and me. A lot of people are calling that the greatest podcast in paranormal history. Oh, yeah. Gosh. I've heard that said. <laughs> yeah, me, and we were talking about that the other day with Lyle. Uh, and we were giving him the origin of that, explaining it to him. You know what's crazy, though, and I, and and I got a buddy who's he's a really wealthy guy, but he's a very very nice, humble dude. He's got his own plane, but he's such a down to earth nice guy, and he's so into cryptids, and he's written a book about it. And I'm gonna get him on the show too. Um, but I, folks, I'm sorry, I've been I got pull, got pulled away because of COVID. But I was talking to Nick, and this this is what I was going to tell you. I was talking to Nick, and I was I was going to have you and Nick and Ken and Lyle and maybe maybe David if David was willing to, and and put you guys uh, go go to different places, you know, like the Honey Island Swamp down there with Dana Holyfield, then go up to the LBL, you know. But my job was going to be very specific. I wasn't going to go to Bray Road and all that, where you guys are going to go out there with meat strapped to y'all's bodies and all that stuff. That's the plan. And I'm going to just yeah. sit back in the hotel and remote view it. <laughs> right. That's a good plan on your, yes. on your part. Yeah, it is. And when but I told I'll tell you him, what, I'd, I'd, go, I'd go anywhere, <laughs> you know, and if it was practical for me to do so, which is not, I have a, a job. A that job, I'm, yeah. I'm really a slave to my job. You know how it is, Josh. And, you have to go with what uh, puts bread on your table and pays your rent and pays your bills. And so I've never looked at the cryptid work like that. Uh, it's always been a, a, a passion for me, right? And it, I've never, of course, everyone loves to make money, but it's for me, it's not about that. I donate all my money to charity. charity I make yeah. off the book. So I, don't, I don't make a dime. So if I had... I was only wish that I was smart enough to get 10 copies of that first edition of human ones <laughs> and sign each and sell, sell each for $10,000 each. And I could help so many people. Well, th then, then what we need to do now that I have a bunch of copies that are signed of the, the, what is it? Second, third edition, whatever I'll send you that edition. first edition and I'll let you sign it and then we can sell it and we can donate the money to charity. There you go. Well, that'd be great, Josh. You're a great, you're a great man, you know, for thinking that. Because I don't need, I don't and need the, the that, I have the other books now. I don't, I don't need that one because I, I right. couldn't get another copy of it. That was my big problem. I mean. Right. No one could. You want to spend thousands of dollars. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so you have this, the second edition, which is much better than the first, honestly, in my opinion. So my publisher, Ash Staunton, really did a great job uh, with with editing that manuscript. And he, you know, it was such a mess because I'd already been out of it, out of it for years. And, uh, and then he wanted to publish uh, Mysterious Kentucky and Mysterious Kentucky 2 and Bigfoot in Kentucky, my other books. And really, it was my manuscripts were a mess. You know, we had to piece them back together, piece by piece. And he did such a great job, and I'm, I'm so proud of the, of the work that he's done for me. And, and and that mysterious Kentucky blew my mind. I couldn't believe. Now I know why you were uh, pestering me, getting on to me about it, about reading it. You were chastising me. Yeah, folks, he was cussing well, me out. Like, let's put it that way. He was like, "You <laughs> son of a b, you better read that me. book." And but then, to know me, you have to read Mysterious Kentucky because that's where I put all my personal uh, encounters in, in, with with all these things. It's pretty epic. Unlike a lot of other people, I have personal experience mm-hmm. uh, with just about everything that I write about. You know, I've never seen a dog man, but I've seen uh, five or six different cryptids on about 13 different occasions, right? So and I've seen a Thunderbird. Uh, I've seen uh, Black Panthers. I've seen Bigfoot. I've seen uh, aquatic anomalies that I don't have any clue what they are. You know, I, I saw what was probably a dire wolf. And, you know, most of these other writers, as much as I love them and respect them, uh, they don't have that perspective. You know, they've been looking for these things all their lives and uh, writing about their quest for for the cryptids. But I've, I've seen them, dude. I've, I've experienced that. And it was not because of anything. Everybody said, oh, you're, you must be psychic or you know, things like that fall around certain people. No, I'm just an average guy. Really, I am. There's nothing special about me. Uh, the reason I would have been so fortunate in my um, cryptid encounters is because of where I was born and raised, mm-hmm. Henderson, Kentucky. And it's full of everything. That's anything unexplained. All the unexplained phenomena are right here. And I didn't have to very go very far to find them, right? So basically out my back door. And I've lived in three places uh, in my life back then, in my younger days. All three were haunted, and all three we had UFO, ongoing UFO activity and ongoing Bigfoot activity, all at the same place at the same time. So That's very common. Right, and so people think, well, oh my gosh, oh my gosh you can't use one mystery to explain another. That's just some kind of logical fallacy. But if it's true, it's not. If it's true, it's the truth, right? So what are the chances of UFOs, Bigfoot, ghosts, and Black Panthers all hanging around the same location at the same time if there is no correlation between those phenomena? There has to be some connection there, and I believe that there is, and I believe that they're all basically coming from the same uh, – they're just different manifestations uh, coming from the same source. Most of the ones that, that I've seen, and I'm not talking about the ones that the government are producing now with their chimera uh, experiments that they're they're doing, which is, I think, what uh, Roger ran into was one of those wolf-man hybrids, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's purely physical, purely created in a genetic laboratory and capable of being harmed or killed by us. But the other, the other ones are I know, such as Bigfoot. There's no way that we can kill one of those things. There's no way. If if we could have killed one of those things, it would have happened back in 1975 in Spotsville, and the mystery would have been solved for 50 years now. 
Let me let me so say you something. Might find me out in LBL. You might find me out there with, with nightmare because you're not. And the only reason I well, I would I take nightmare and my other weapons, my primitive weapons, is because you don't they don't allow you to have handguns in a, in the national park like that. Yeah. So if I could, I would take my guns. But since I can, I would take my primitive weapons, which probably would be more effective anyway because I've listened to stories countless times over and over again how people have shot these things. And the bullets have little or no effect, no effect at all. So I'm thinking you have to probably cut one of them's head off to uh, really, you know, make any headway in that that line. So I've got just the things to do, and I just got a brand new sword. I haven't introduced it to the people yet, but it's called Midnight, and it's really something uh, <laughs> so deadly. Uh, Byron, I want to say something about that, about Kentucky, about what you said about having seen these different anomalies. Now, some people will poo-poo that and think, oh, this guy's, I don't, you know. But let me tell you all something. I personally have seen a lot of weird things, too. Not a lot of cryptids, but you're talking about, first of all, a guy in Barton who's been out in the woods his whole life. I mean, that's he just he's always out there. And so he he's deep out in the woods of Kentucky. I don't think people really grasp what Kentucky is as a state, I get weird stories out of Kentucky and, and I'm going to be doing one about these uh, crystal caves, whatever the crystal, I don't know if you know about that. We'll get into that, but there yeah. is uh, a lot of weird stuff there because the, the, the cave system, Kentucky is built on top of caves. It's hollow underneath. Right. There, I'm telling you. On top of the, largest, the largest known cave system Mammoth, mammoth in caves. the world. Mm-hmm. And each year they discover 10 to 15 more miles. I think, Right now, it's up to like 400 and some odd miles of underground tunnels and passageways. And, you know, Josh, it, there's no telling what lives down there. Oh, my God. It's also rumored to be one of the eight world entrances to the underground city of Agartha. I know you've heard of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, and there's a lot of Bigfoot activity around those caves. And, you know, I sometimes like to theorize that maybe these Bigfoot creatures come out from the caves and if you look at a map that people have spread around the, the social media, uh, um, the United States with the highest amount of sightings, you'll see that Kentucky and uh, really the, the entire Ohio Valley is completely covered and saturated. And you can't even see the states, right? So I always thought maybe these things are coming out from underground and mm-hmm. going from Kentucky and just spreading out across the, the country uh, like spokes in a wheel and just – uh, saturating the country, but you know this could be their point of origin for all we know. Yeah, they, and, and that's why so many people. Like I'm sorry, Barton, but th- that's why so many people see things in Kentucky. I don't think people realize what I mean. What they're dealing with there. I mean that that is a reason for right. me, like why there's so much activity of all these different types of cryptids. I'm a big inner earth guy. And I believe that there's a whole world in the inner earth. And a lot of people will probably think I'm crazy. But you know what? I have just, just seen too much, read too much, and I just have, I've learned too much about these. Uh, and, and, and I believe that that's what's going on. I believe that there's a lot of activity because these species of, of, of uh, entities, creatures, whatever, they come from under, under, the, under the earth. I think the physical ones... I think a lot of those other ones, though, they they're metaphysical, and I think that they can they can change, you know, um, and be physical, but also be spiritual. If that makes any sense. But I think that a lot of these physical specimens come from within the earth, and and I've thought that for a long time. And 
And and I think that, 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 that there's no surprise somebody who's lived their whole life outside, you know, in Kentucky, that you're going to see something. I mean, a lot of people spend their whole lives just, just you know, going to work, you know, doing whatever they do. They didn't grow up in the woods like you did. Like the first 15 years of my life, I spent out in the woods, you know, and I saw weird stuff, heard weird things, but didn't, not to the extent that you did, but like, you know, you were in Kentucky. And I think that that, that this book, if you, if you read his book, Mysterious Kentucky, we're not trying to plug his book and be like, cause he, Martin doesn't make nothing off of that. He just, but if, if you want to get to the meat and potatoes of what, what Barton and me are talking about, go read Mysterious Kentucky because that book, it, you're right. It, it opened my eyes to a lot of things. It talks about a lot of different things. One, I wanted to ask you a question about that book. Now, the beginning of it you, was really interesting. The prehistory, like the pe- the petroglyphs, right. you know, the the. Uh, you right. want to get into some of that prehistory uh, that you talk yeah, about? Well, you have to realize. Also, I like to make a point that Kentucky has been cursed from the very beginning. Uh, all the Native Americans uh, knew that. And the word Kentuck actually means uh, land of tomorrow. But the nickname that the Native Americans gave this place is the dark and bloody ground. And when they uh, purchased this this area from the from the uh, Indians, they the Indians warned them that okay, well here's you can have it, but uh, you're not going to be able to settle here because it's it's a dark and bloody ground and it's filled with spirits. And but so you know, of course, the the, the white settlers didn't listen to all that and uh, the crazy myths of the savages they think you know and the superstitions of the savages. But honestly. Uh, the Indians knew a lot more about this place than we still do. So, I mean, we found, they found uh, this, the Kentucky is really saturated with what they call uh, the mound builders work. And they thought it was Native American burial mounds until they started opening up these Native American burial mounds in the, in the late 1800s and early 1900s and started finding all kinds of crazy stuff there, like giant skeletons. Uh, uh, Viking uh, warriors with swords and, and shields and Romans, and Roman Roman mm-hmm. coins, Roman uh, yeah. Hebrew and coins, so yeah. everything is everything you can think of. Any unexplained phenomena has happened and can be experienced here in the Bluegrass State. It's every one of them. And uh, once you once you finish reading Mysterious Kentucky, you'll see that I've experienced a lot. You know, I've I've seen a portal. A lot of people don't believe in portals. They you say portal, and they're like, "Oh, this guy's crazy." Automatically turn off what they're listening to, or or put the book down. But I've seen them, and uh, the Spotsville Monster, the the best witness that we had, which was our neighbor down the road who came to uh, save us every time these things started terrorizing us because the state police wouldn't respond to our calls anymore. But he actually saw these creatures walking in and out of portals on three different occasions and he described the portals as uh, an area of it looked like uh, heat coming off a su- uh, summer highway right heat rising up off the road and there would be just a heat there and then suddenly one of these things would step out and later on they would go right back into the portal and disappear so this guy's a baptist minister and he's a, he's the hero of the the sponsor monster story when everybody will know this when I, when I finally get the book done but He's the one that came out and uh, helped us. And when things were really bad, he would come out and uh, escort us off the property, right? 
uh, to when we go to my grandmother's house, Mama Nunley's house, and we'd stay for a day or two, and then they'd come back. And But the state police stopped re- responding to our calls after about seven or eight times, you know. They thought we were crazy, so. Oh, explain explain to the audience what you're dealing with, what you were dealing with. Well, we were dealing with a uh, with eight to ten foot tall hairy creatures that came up on our property and killed every single one of our. How old were you? How old were you, Barn? I was I was nine years old, and it was 1975. This is the first time you'd ever dealt with anything like that. No, the first time we'd ever dealt with anything like so. Mount Ridge Row was what we called the Hughes Farm. It was owned by a man named Shorty Hughes, and uh, he uh, rented it to Dad really cheap. So Dad had promised to raise uh, a big truck patch, is what they called back then, which is a vegetable garden, and let Shorty come and take his pick of all the stuff there. But the first the first run-ins we had with, with anything crazy was in 1971 when we lived at the Boost Farm. And this was just like the Mount Ridge Road location. It was right on the banks of the Green River, Surrounded by Indian burial mounds, Indian artifacts, right? And so we lived there, and I was uh, five years old. And one night we were uh, sitting at the in the kitchen, so we didn't have a living room. It was a little bitty, you know, house. We never we never had much. We were dirt poor, and you know, Dad only he just he had uh, glaucoma and had a uh, monthly pension check coming in, and that's what we existed on. And we would move in a house for so long, and he would finally, you know, not be able to pay the rent, and we'd get evicted, and we had to go somewhere cheap, which was always down in the bottomlands of western Kentucky, you know, cheap rent. Nobody wants really wants to live there, but uh, that's that's what it, how, how we lived back then. And and the Boost Farm was on the, on, the, on the banks of the Green River, and surrounded by woods and Indian barrel mounds, and we're sitting in, in the kitchen watching tv one one night and my older sister's two years older than me diona uh she screamed out and everybody's like what's the matter and she pointed to the window and said there's a face looking and there was a face looking in the window at me and dad said well what it looked like and she said frankenstein daddy so it had what i take from that is it had uh heavy brow ridge you know like the boris cars carlo uh loft frankenstein He had the, the heavy brow ridge there, so I was thinking that's what she was talking about. But anyway, Dad grabbed a shotgun. We always had a shotgun, and uh, Mom comes to him outside immediately, and they saw this tall uh, brown figure running down the road going into some of the back fields, lower lower fields, and Dad shot a couple times at it with a 12-gauge. And we didn't think much more about it, but a couple weeks later, uh, my mom, we're all asleep, and it's a, it's a school night, and you know I'm five, and I got little brothers and sisters everywhere. But uh, my mom and my older sister Diana had stayed up, and were looking through a Sears Roebuck catalog, and it was getting toward Christmas. They were picking out Christmas presents for for my sister, and my mom noticed out the window a red glow coming coming inside the window. So she went to the window and looked, and saw a flying saucer. Uh, come down from the sky and land back behind one of our old barns. And she f- just freaked out. You know, mom was the kind of woman that uh, in an emergency, she just panics. But she started screaming around to the house, uh, ran to dad and said, daddy, uh, Teddy, Teddy, we got to get up. We got to get the kids out of here. There's a spaceship landing 
behind a barn. <laughs> it was totally, you know, bizarre, but I remember it like it was yesterday. So dad gets up and said, get the kids dressed, get the kid, all the kids, wake them up and get dressed. And my little brother, Victor, he wouldn't wake up. He just uh, refused to wake up. So mom had to spank him to get him awake. And so she finally got us all awake and dressed. And uh, dad, dad told her, don't turn any lights on when you're doing this. Which, you know, kind of sounded strange, but I knew why later. Uh, so she finally got us all dressed and we're sitting there at the kitchen table. And dad said, we'll sit right here and be quiet. Don't turn any lights on. And about this time every night, uh, the river barge comes down the river, uh, blowing his uh, horn and sweeping the floodlights off through the trees, right? And so we said, when that happens, we'll make a break for the car. Because he thought whoever was in that flying saucer was coming up to the house, and our dogs wouldn't even bark. Vicious dogs would not even bark. So we hadn't been, we sat at the table quietly in the dark about midnight for five or six minutes, and finally that, that horn blew. And Dad said, Come on, let's go. And then, then the lights started sweeping through the trees, right? The spotlights on the barge. And we ran to the car and fled the scene rather hastily, and we we moved out uh, the next day. And so when they come back to, to move out, uh, they said that the, uh, the roof of that metal barn, had, it, had a, it was a wooden barn with a metal roof, but it had turned uh, completely rusty, just like overnight. So that was our first run-in with, with stuff like that. So after that, Mom was so scared, we moved to the city. I went to the town of Henderson for, uh, I think it was four years. And we got so sick of that. Uh, we were country people, you know, where you can't, a country person is really not happy in the city, Josh. Yeah. Uh, it's just, you know, a totally different life, lifestyle. And, and we were trying to get back to the country and dad had gotten in trouble with the rent again. So, yeah, he, his brother put him in touch with Shorty Hughes. He said he would give him, you know, we can rent a house for like $80 a month or if he would let him come pick vegetables, and it was perfect. So we drive out there, and it's a perfect house. It's secluded, way back in the woods, right on the banks of the Green River again, you know. And by that time, Mom and Dad had already forgotten about basically the stuff of the of the boost farm. Well, we hadn't forgotten about it, but, you know, they were sick of the, the city living, so the, we were all ready to go back to the country. We, we got there. And there was a guy living there named Buzzy White, and uh, he started telling my mom and dad uh, about the place, and, you know, we're, we're going to move in, and they're moving to Orangeboro, and this and that. And when, when dad walked in the house, and mom, they noticed the, the back screen door, that's when we went inside the house through the back screen door, they noticed that it had uh, 15 or 20 bullet holes in the door. Wow. <laughs> Dad finally, you know, he's drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes, you know, and talking and shooting the breeze with this this old fellow. He's older than Dad. My dad was like 55 back then. And he finally just come right out and asked Buzzy, hey, what's uh, what's all with all the bullet holes in the back screen door? So Buzzy kind of looked really uh, concerned, right? And he told his daughter, he said, uh, Sarah, I want you to take... Uh, Rose and Red's kids outside and play in the snow, maybe build a snowman or something for a minute. 
And so that's what she did and took us out. And while we were outside, he told my dad and mom that the summer previously he'd been sitting at the kitchen table with the back door open and he had his uh, rifle sitting right next to the back door, as country folks often do, but it's usually a shotgun. In this case, Buzzy had a rifle. And uh, he said he was sitting there, and his wife and uh, daughters were in town getting groceries or something, and uh, he just the hair on the back of his neck stood up, and he just knew that he was being watched, so he turned around, and there, standing not 10 feet away from the back door, was this big, hairy feller, a big, hairy feller. And uh, he knew immediately that something was off, so he just grabbed his his rifle and empties it into... Uh, right through the door, into this creature. And after he shoots it a, a, a bunch of times, uh, the creature just walks off casually. And so he walks out. He finally gets up enough courage to walk out and look uh, for signs of that creature. There's no blood. There's no footprints or nothing. So he warned my dad and mom uh, about that. And he also told them that it didn't seem to want to hurt me or anything like that, even though I shot it. I know I hit it, but it just walked off, and we hadn't seen it since. So Dad wasn't worried. He said, well, we've already had experience with the brown men before over at the Boost Farm, and uh, they're scared of shotguns, so it's not going to be a problem. So we went ahead and moved into the house, and it was, uh, believe me, uh, it was a big problem. And eventually, 11 months later, the, the thing terrorized so bad that we had to, we had to leave the house and move back to the city. So this thing would kill all our animals, Josh. And the strange thing was, my mom saw it and really good, and my brother saw it really good in the daylight. And the strange thing was that the thing wouldn't eat the, the meat of the animals. Each We found like eight or nine dead dogs out there, a pig, and he killed our pony. He strangled our pony to death with its own tether, and he killed one of our goats. But the animals that we found, it would just bring like neighboring dogs up into our property and lay it in our fields where we would find it. But the strain, it was strangely mutilated and it was like they were sliced from their throats to their groins. All the guts, soft tissues were scooped out and the tongues and eyeballs were gone. They were removed as well, but all the meat just laid right there and they would not decompose. No carrion bird would light on them. No fly would even land on these uh, dogs. And they just laid there for months and months and months until they finally decomposed. But it was really strange, really strange things that happened there. And uh, and we knew the creatures were bad because if they they were really shy and retiring, you know, and didn't want anybody to find them, just want to be left alone. I hear that so many times, and I'm so sick of that. Hearing that because these things could just went on down the river a ways and no one would ever see them. But no, they came up to our house to terrorize us almost nightly and killed all of our animals. So to me, that's an evil action uh, by an evil creature. So we, we stayed in the uh, we stayed in the, the city for ten more years. We made it ten more years because we were really just tired of uh, uh, dealing with the the unexplained and weird, bizarre stuff that happened to us. But my mom and dad got a divorce three months after we left the uh, Mountain Ridge Road area. 
and we were shipped up to Hobart, Indiana for a few months to live with our uh, half-sister. And we finally made it all back, and uh, 10 years later, we got another house, you know, out in the country. And this was probably the worst of all. This was so hot. It was the most haunted house I've ever lived in, and I, to this day, I cannot stand. You know, I'll go out, and uh, I'll, I'll hunt a dog man with my night, with my sore nightmare. But I don't want to be involved in no haunting, no haunted houses at all, in any capacity. I don't want to go in one. You know, I don't, I don't even like reading about them, honestly. I don't make it that. Funny, you, you, you know, we were talking off, uh, off air, and you mentioned that I, about the show I did <clears throat> on uh, Travel Channel. Yeah, right. It's a great show. You did a great job. You and uh, Scorpion, is that his name? Yeah. 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 Did a great job. But you know, the, the, that, that tells you right there, like when you're inside of a building like that with who knows what, you know, Scorp was more worried about <laughs> what was inside that building than what was outside that building. And you know, that area where we were at, and I, I can't really give it away because you know, that, that was a client that we dealt with about two right. or three times and we don't want to, we don't you know want to destroy that relationship. But there were dogman sightings, Bigfoot sightings in that area. More dogman, but there were some Bigfoot we got. And I told Scorpus, "Oh like, wow, you know, no, were, I didn't say that." Yeah, yeah, and and you know, I told Scorpus, "Were you scared when you were walking down the road?" Because on the on the show, it shows him like sitting out in front of the church, but actually, he was kind of running down the road. Again, I don't. I guess he was going to try and make it to the main <laughs> road, which getting to the main road was miles. And and it was a lot further yeah. out than we than we actually said on either on on the show we did on the on the PRT or on the Travel Channel, you know. And those guys at Travel Channel like, hey, we really want to do that episode, and and we were the first episode, and then we were the first uh, story of the first episode of the new season. So first segment, yeah, first segment, yeah, we yeah. got first uh, segment or whatever. And I've brought them witnesses. They've used some of the people. I've I've sent them people. But you know, when 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 I picked him up, he was running down that road, and I I made a joke years later. I was like, "Weren't you afraid of dog man?" He goes, "I wasn't even thinking about dog man." He goes, "I was just thinking about getting away from whatever the heck was there." And you know, and then of course I had I took my turn, and then my business partner took his turn afterwards, which they didn't really talk about. And you know, we during the interview we actually talked about his, you know, what he had happened to him, but they didn't really get into it. I can tell you right now. That that when you're dealing with that supernatural, demonic, whatever, you just want to get the heck away from it. You might jump in the water with sharks to get away from it just because it's so. Uh, right. Yeah. It just gets on you and it's like it sticks to you, you know. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about it, the, the Reese farm, the one I was just telling you about, the, the one we moved in, it was the most haunted. We had so many things happen there. Uh, one, one night we was all in bed asleep and it was about midnight and. Suddenly, the whole house shook, and we, we heard what it sounded like a big explosion. It just shook the whole house, and I immediately thought that a car or truck had ran off the road up into our driveway and hit the house. So I, I jumped up jumped up and ran downstairs, and my dad was down there, and he said, Don't you turn on the lights, son. I'm like, Okay. And I grabbed the shotgun. He said, Look out the windows. And see if you can see anything. The dogs aren't barking. I'm like, oh, I'm going to see. Oh, here we go again. Uh, so I looked out the window. I didn't see anything, Josh. And no uh, lights of a car sticking out of our garage or anything like that. And no sounds, no dog barking. So it was just really bizarre. So 
Dad said, we're going to wait till in the morning. Don't go out. In the morning, we'll go out and see what we can see. And in the morning, we went out, and our garage door had been ripped off its uh, metal track. The rollers were everywhere, and the garage door from the right corner had been pushed into our garage and was on the garage floor. And it took me and my brother two or three weeks with ball-peen hammers to hammer out those uh, those metal uh, tracks that the rollers went in and fix that garage door. And uh, so it was just so many weird things happening out there. They saw actual apparitions. And, you know, it was so... Every time we moved back to the country from the city, it was three times in my in my youth, strange things happened. So... That's how I have so many experiences. People were seeing Bigfoot uh, right outside the door. Uh, my, my oldest daughter and her mother and my sister were out hanging clothes or getting clothes off the line. One It was dusk one night, and one of these creatures walked up from across the road. And it had yellow, green, glowing eyes. It was about eight or nine foot tall and started approaching the girls. And so my girlfriend at the time and my my sister just ran away and they left my four-year-old daughter standing at the clothesline. And when they got to the door, my sister said, oh, my gosh, we've left Tina Marie. So she runs back out and grabs Tina. But this thing was coming up right on them, you know. How many kids were there? Seven kids? Seven of y'all? So in my family, there were six kids, yeah. Six kids. Six of them. And you were in the middle somewhere, right? Well, I was in the third of six children, right, right in the middle. <laughs> yeah. So I was kind of invisible, really, back then. I don't know if you know anything about being a middle child, but it's like, it's almost like you're invisible sometimes, you know. I was you have the youngest, kids. but I still experienced being invisible, uh, I'll tell you that. Right. Well, you got a lot of attention being the youngest, probably, but when you're a middle child. No, I didn't, actually. I was, really <laughs> I was a latchkey kid. But uh, my parents were working. Oh, yeah. yeah, my parents never. I, I rode my bike to football practice. I took. I did. I mean, I did pretty much everything myself. Didn't have much. Right. Well, you know. my dad, yeah, my dad was able to stay home with us uh, because he had glaucoma. You know, he's disabled, and uh, so I was able to spend a lot of time with my dad. And and the events that happened in Spotsville, uh, I was able to talk to him just about it every day. And you know, that's. What I don't remember myself, he remembered. And so the story that I wrote of the Spotsville Monster, which I've never wrote a complete story with all the details in it. I wrote a, a, a manuscript for a TV, a screenplay for uh, um, one of my best friends. You know, he did the Blair Witch Project about 20 years ago, and he made the movie Exist about Bigfoot. But I, I wrote this for him, and uh, it was the most... Uh, complete uh, telling of that tale that I've ever wrote, but you have to realize that I was writing it for a small-time production company with a very limited budget. So the book is going to be quite a bit different. It's going to have all the details in it that I could not put in to the screenplay. Uh, So I met my buddy at, I think, my 30th high school reunion, and he asked me to do that. And so I spent a year working that screenplay, and I had, it was 321 pages so I, I called him up and said, okay, I'm finally done with the screenplay. He said, okay, how long is it? I said, 321 pages. He said, oh, my God, no. He said, what you don't realize is one page of script equals one minute of movie. So we can't have anything over 
an hour and a half, an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and 30 minutes, at 90 pages. Like 90 pages? You mean I've got to scrap two-thirds of the screenplay? He said, yeah. So now with this book, I'm going to get the chance to put in all the detail and in a lot of it that I haven't revealed yet because I've only written, you know, uh, um, condensed versions of that story. It was, it was so much to it, but uh, hopefully soon I'll be done and people will be able to read what really happened in Spotsville, Kentucky in 1975. And it's very frightening. That's crazy. That was the year I was born. Uh, you know, I'm going to tell you something that on, on your mysterious Kentucky, uh, you know, the volume one. Okay. Cause you got, there's two volumes folks. I don't know if you know, there's the mysterious Kentucky volume one and two. You you know, and I'm not going to get into like every encounter you had in there, you know, because there's a lot. But there was a part where you were guys were in the river, and you and, and this giant thing surfaced to the water. Do you want to tell that story? Because that's pretty crazy. There's a story yeah, like that in the San Gabriel River where, where I'm from. But go ahead. So the water monster or the giant turtle. Yeah. Which one are you talking about? The size the, the size of a, of a Volkswagen. Yes. Yeah, so we're all center fishers. And keep in mind, you know, anybody can make stuff up and say it. If there's no other witnesses, no, there's no one to refute their word or contradict what they're saying. Everything, every time that I saw anything. You had people with you. uh, As far as cryptid goes, I was with multiple witnesses. Mm -hmm, Me too. Multiple. So we were 10 of us, 10 or 12 of us fishing in the Howell River. And, you know, we're all having a good time and fishing, catching some catfish. And we noticed this big blob looking thing floating down the river it was going really kind of slow and it wasn't but about 70 or 80 feet from the from the bank that we were at and so it it floats languidly by us and everybody's going what in the world is that it had it was covered in about three inches of moss right it was a big it was a roundish looking object but it wasn't completely covered with the moss there were patches that were not covered and and in the clear patches, I could see what looked like a turtle shell pattern. And I said, oh, my gosh, that's a turtle. <laughs> and everybody's like, oh, you're crazy. You know, turtles don't ever get that big. It's, there's no way. And about that time, the turtle uh, sticks out its head from its shell and looks around real slow, looks around again, and withdraws its head and just floats on down the river. And everybody was sitting there with their mouth mouths agape and like oh my gosh you're right bart it was a turtle this turtle was as big as a volkswagen at least that's crazy never seen anything like it it had to be so old the moss and and stuff that was grown on its back was just looked ancient so yeah there's things in the ohio river that i thank the lord that you know i used to swim in ohio and green river when i was a kid and i thank the lord that i'm still alive now and i never would let my kids do that because I've seen things in that in those rivers that could take a person under, and they'll ne- never, never be back. seen from again. They're they're just gone. I've seen things, you know. I've seen something, uh, two things fighting. Uh, I was going across the Spotsville Bridge one one day back in the nineties, and uh, it's about seventy seventy five feet down to the water, and it was just about the dawn, and I look over in the water, and there's these two things making some just huge splashes in the water. So I slow down and I look at it and they're, they're about 15 feet long each, whatever they are and long and slender. And I mean, they were really going to town uh, and the water was just splashing everywhere. It was strange. 
I, I don't know what they are or what they were. Still don't. And I've seen things swimming in, in the river in broad daylight. I have no clue what, what it is or was. Still don't. So I've seen things that, that swim. I've seen things that have walked and crawled. And I've seen things that fly in the air all right here in Henderson County, Kentucky. And it's all true. And I realized when I was writing this book, how truthful do I want to be? You know, each thing, each uh, cryptid sighting that I write down in this book is going to make me look less credible. But you know what? It's the truth. So I chose the truth over popularity or credibility or reputation. And I really have been that way ever since my whole life. I don't really care what people think about me. I had no reputation to protect when I first started writing. And I still don't as far as I'm concerned. My only goal is to tell the truth as best I can, and what other people, uh, what the readers do with that information is, is their own uh, decision. I can't, uh, I can't have any control over that. They'll either accept it or deny it, as is their want, you know. So, but everything that I, that I wrote in that book, uh, despite uh, uh, how it makes me look, uh, everything is true, and that's, that's the thing you know about me. I will never lie about any of this stuff. Never. I, I, I'm totally against liars. I'm totally against these. I'm totally against you know, the people that are, that pretend to be you know, things that they're not. So, every, so everything that I write is 100% authentic, and that's where I say I can bring a little bit different perspective uh, to this uh, genre, this field, yeah. niche writing, than, than a lot of my colleagues and and friends that I respect so much. You know they. They've really never seen anything, but and I've seen so many things. It's it's really crazy to think about how many cryptids that I've encountered. I've encountered, encountered at least six different cryptids on about twelve or thirteen different occasions. And I've seen black panthers three times. I've seen the water monsters three or four times. You know, I've seen the dire wolf. I saw the uh, pteranodon flying in the sky, and that's an interesting thing there. Uh, but I'll tell you one thing, Josh. I'll tell you, since your your listeners might want to hear this, one of the scariest things I've ever seen or happened to me. And that's all the time we have for this week, folks. We're going to leave you all on a cliffhanger. If you all want to hear the rest of Barton Nunley's personal cryptid encounters, you'll have to tune in again next week for the second of this, what's going to be a three-part series. So thank you for tuning in tonight and we hope to see y'all for this tuesday's live stream and then next friday for part two and the friday after that for part three thank you for joining us and good night